This morning we're going to bite off a chunk of Philippians verses 12 through 18. And I want to read those with you this morning, so hopefully you have found it by now. Philippians chapter number 1, and we will look at verses 12 through 18. Here's what verse 12 says. But I would you should understand, brethren, that the things which have happened unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel, so that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and in all other places. And many of the brethren in the Lord, waxing confident by my bonds, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ even of envy and strife, and some also of goodwill. The one preached Christ of contention, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my bonds, but the other of love, knowing that I am set for the defense, for the defense of the gospel. What then, notwithstanding every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and I therein do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. This morning I want to talk to you about this thought, God, the only alchemist. Well, God, the only alchemist, uh, Matthew Henry, who is a kind of 1700s commentator and minister, said on this particular passage that he called God the only alchemist. And I read that and thought, that's interesting. What does that mean? And alchemy was the kind of medieval precursor to chemistry. It was the idea that somehow through a chemical process, they could take base metals such as lead, something that was base and worthless and seemingly useless and invaluable, and they could turn that metal into gold. Now, we know, humanly speaking, we've never been able to invent a process to turn lead or some sort of base metal into gold, but Henry said of God, which I would echo his sentiment, that God can take lead and turn it into gold. That God can take something that is seemingly negative, that is seemingly destructive, that you would naturally not put into your life, but he can take that and he can work that for positive and he can work that for gold. And this is exactly what Paul is saying here in this passage of Scripture. And I want us just to understand, uh, really just follow his thought pattern on what he's saying here to the church at Philippi. So Paul has just come out of his introduction He's just come out of, I think about you, I'm thankful to God for you, I make my request to God with joy, I'm so grateful for your fellowship in the gospel, I know that God, he's begun something in you, and he's going to continue to work that in you, and you're with me in a defense and confirmation of the gospel, and man, I'm praying for you. I'm praying that your love would, would increase more and more. I'm praying that that would be in knowledge, that would be in judgment, and I know that that is going to work out in this way and that way. And then he leaves that, and he says, okay, now let me talk about a different topic here. He starts in verse number 12, and he begins with just the problem of his suffering. He says, but I would you should understand, brethren, that the things which have happened unto me have fallen out rather, now stop there, he says, brethren, church at Philippi, I want you to understand something, kind of leaning into that maybe they had a misconception. I want you to understand that the things which have happened to me have fallen out rather. What he's saying is that this has turned out rather. So it seems like there was a misconception, that there was something that they were thinking, maybe this was happening to Paul and it was resulting in this. But he says, I'm going I'm to set the record straight. Here is what's happened unto me, has happened for, and we'll get why it's for in just a moment. But he says, what's happened unto me, actually, I want you to understand something here. So what has happened to Paul? All right, Paul is the missionary evangelist. 
Paul is the man who travels from city to city, country to church, uh, country to country. He sets up shop, he plants a church, and then he moves on to the next one. Paul has been bound. Now Paul is in prison. That's kind of detrimental for a traveling church planter. Now you can no longer go synagogue to synagogue, city to city, place to place, planting churches. Now he's bound up, shipped off to Rome, awaiting trial, and this would seemingly be something that was detrimental to Paul's ministry. The Philippians are looking at this, and naturally, humanly speaking, they're thinking, you're a concert pianist with your hands tied behind your back. Like, what are you going to do now, buddy? You're locked up and in prison, and you can't do what God has really called you to do in planting these churches and being a missionary. But Paul will tell us that God is more than capable of taking this supposed lead and turning it into gold for his glory. Now, before we get to exactly how God's doing that, I just want to remind you this morning that what happened to Paul, that negativity or the circumstances that were dire, the things that he would not have naturally orchestrated, but God orchestrated and brought into his life, that will happen to you. There's no chance that you are going to be, to be able to engineer a problem-free life. That option is not on the table. Your life last week, last month, last year, this week, this month, this year, is going to have some things that come your way that you would not have planned for, that you would not have chosen, that you would not have sat back and said, yes, I would love the, the physical difficulty. Yes, I'd love the financial difficulty. Yes, I would love the, the emotional hardship. Yes, I'd love for my, you would not choose that. But that will happen. There's no way you're going to escape life without any problems. And you can't control that. You're not, you're not the puppet master of your own life pulling all the strings and controlling everything. And we like to think that we are sometimes. And some of you would struggle a lot with, with wanting to control everything, but I'll remind you, you can't. You're not going to tell the stock market what to do this week. You're not going to tell your adult children the decisions to make this week. Or you may tell them, but you've learned already that they may choose to do otherwise. Will they not? You're not going to control that drunk driver. He may drink and drive and ruin someone's life, and you're not going to be able to stop him from doing that. You're not going to be able to control the bracket this week so that your March Madness pool at work works out okay. That's not, it's not going to happen. And Paul understands this. Paul has told us in verse number one that he was a servant, that he had surrendered his will to God's will. He had put that on the line and said, God, I want what you want more than I want what I want. Paul's plans, he had told us in Romans, his plan was to go to Rome as a free man, spend time with the church at Rome, and then he wanted to go beyond that into Spain. That's what he said his plans were. And God has rewritten those plans. Paul has taken his plans, written them in pencil, but he handed God the number two and said, you get the eraser, erase them if you want, and write over them. And God's done exactly that. He's erased his human plans and said, I have something different for your life. And Paul is big enough to step back and to say, you know what? This has happened unto me, but I understand that this is not for no reason, that God is still in control, and I'm going to have a robust understanding that God is working something that I would naturally see as negative, but he's working it out for positive. There's been a, a poem that's floated around churches for a long time, I won't read all of it to you, but there's a stanza from the master weaver that says this. It says, the dark threads were as needful in the weaver's skillful hand as the threads of gold and silver for the pattern which he had planned. 
So sometimes there's going to be gold and silver that comes into your life, and you're going to naturally just rejoice and celebrate and think, this is so awesome. But sometimes there's going to be dark threads that mingle with those. And it's when those varied threads of circumstance work together that God is still able to weave that into a pattern for His praise, for His glory, and even for your own good. So there's been some negative stuff that has befallen Paul that he would not have planned. But he says this, I want you to understand that this has happened rather, and we'll see the progress from Paul's suffering, rather, verse number 12, unto the furtherance of the gospel, so that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and in all other places, and many of the brethren in the Lord, waxing confident by my bonds, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Paul says three things are happening. Number one, the gospel is being furthered. This has happened unto me, and it's actually resulted in the furtherance of the gospel. He's saying, Philippi, newsflash, you would think that this would have put the clamps on the gospel, and now I'm not able to travel everywhere I want and just tell anybody and everybody about Jesus. You would think that this would have resulted in the gospel being less effective and less people hearing about Jesus, but the opposite has happened. Somehow God took this lead and turned it into gold, and this has fallen out to the furtherance of the gospel. More people are hearing about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus for our sins. And he says specifically, here's how this happened. Verse number uh, 13. So that my bonds in Christ are manifest or are made known or are made loud and clear. My bonds in Christ are made manifest in all the palace and in all other places. Paul is saying... People are talking about this jailbird who's in prison. In the palace and in everywhere, the word is being spread that there's this guy who's been planting churches who is now in prison, and he is proclaiming a message that there's a king of kings. There's a king grander than Caesar. He's proclaiming a message that every knee will bow before that king one day, and he's proclaiming a message that there's a kingdom that will supplant all other earthly kingdoms. This guy is saying that, and this king is some Jesus guy, some guy just a few years ago that we killed, and supposedly he, you know, rose from the dead. People are talking about why I'm in prison, why I'm bound up, and now the gospel is actually being made loud and clear in the palace of Caesar in Rome and in all other places. Now there's people walking down the palace halls Googling, who is Jesus? People are walking down the streets of Rome. Hey Siri, tell me about the King of Kings. Well, he is the King of Kings and you need to ask him into your heart to forgive your sins and to, and to be Lord of your life. That, that's what's happening. The word is actually being spread because he's bound. And Paul says, this is working out to the furtherance of the gospel. I would have never planned this. I would have never thought that this would have actually worked out the more people would hear about Jesus. But this is, this is taking place. Paul is at this point in time in his imprisonment, he's bound to praetorian guard. The praetorian guard, there were levels in the Roman army, in the, the special ops, the elite forces was the praetorian guard. There were about 9,000 of them. And these men were directly responsible for guarding the palace and for guarding Caesar. And there were a few of them that would be stationed at other places where maybe Caesar would vacation or travel, those sorts of things. But Paul would have had one of these praetorian guard chained to him two or three different guys a day that they would have taken shifts and actually been locked to him, probably at the ankle, maybe at the wrist, who knows, but they're chained to him. So several times a day, Paul is introduced to a new, calloused, cold, hardened, tough as nails praetorian guard 
and they're changed the most effective evangelist the world has ever known. And one by one, this captive audience is being converted. And now they're starting to tell their buddies. And now they're starting to tell other people. And now the word is being spread. And there are, there are secular historians, Tacitus and different people who, who write history in this same time frame as Paul, who tell us about the word being spread throughout Rome and throughout the government because of this. And Paul is sharing the message one by one. This is not what he would have planned for his life, but God has done this for him. And this, it's the words being spread in the palace and all the places. Then verse number 14. And many of the brethren in the Lord, waxing confident by my bonds, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Paul says both the number and nature of those that are witnessing is improving. Many of them, and they're waxing more bold and more confident so that they can preach Jesus without fear. Now, I look at that, and I would naturally, humanly speaking, I would think the opposite would happen. This guy talks about Jesus, gets thrown in prison, is potentially going to die. I would humanly think that that would cause people to be like, I don't want to talk about Jesus anymore because I may get thrown in prison and I may end up dying. But Paul says, not so. The opposite has happened. My bonds are causing people to wax bold and speak the word fearlessly. People are more daring with the gospel. People are more bold with the gospel. People are giving Jesus more often. More people are doing this because I'm locked up. That They're perhaps looking at me and thinking, well, if Paul can share the gospel and the praetorian guard is getting saved, then anybody can get saved. If Paul is willing to still share Jesus despite his circumstances, then who am I to not share Jesus? Here's what's happening. This is encouraging and edifying the body rather than discouraging them. And sometimes this happens even, humanly speaking, this happens just in, in all arenas of life. If you, how many uh, Steelers fans in the room that like you really, really like the Steelers? All right, a few of us, I expected like a hoop or a holler, but that's okay. You can, you can leave it without, I'm going to get some water. We, if you are, now many of you cheer for the black and gold just because you're a Pittsburgher. But many of you really like the black and gold and you would know that last December, something of this nature happened on the Steelers team. Ryan Shazier, their linebacker, arguably their best linebacker, made a tackle against the Bengals and hurt his back. Hurt his back so much that they thought he was going to be paralyzed, had surgery, still not exactly sure what's, what's going to happen there, but I mean really injured himself playing football. Now I would look at that and naturally think that his teammates would have said, you know what, I'm going to tackle with a little bit more caution next time. I'm going to be a little bit timid as I approach the running back, as I try to tackle somebody. You would naturally think that some guy, his life is forever altered because he made a tackle, that the rest of the team would look at that and say, hmm, we just better not play as hard now. But you know what happened? The opposite, did it not? It became this rallying cry for the Steelers that now they were going to play harder and faster and more fierce for Shazier because he hurt himself that instead of causing them to be timid, it caused them to be bold. And Paul is saying my bonds that you would naturally think would equal timidity for people is not, that's not what's happening. 
This is happening. The gospel's being furthered. Jesus is being preached in the palace. Jesus is being made known all across the nation. People are becoming more bold. They're becoming more confident. And this is working out for good, that God is taking my lead. He's taking my imprisonment, my circumstances that I would not have chosen. And it's working for the advancement of the gospel, which is, I would remind you, what always happens with persecution. This is why I'm a firm believer that we as American Christians, can't, we can't lose. One of two things will happen in our country. The pendulum will swing back towards Jesus and back towards God and back towards morality, which would cause us to celebrate and rejoice. I'd love that. Or the pendulum will swing further away from Jesus, away from God, which will inevitably lead to persecution, laws, Christians being portrayed as even more bigoted or, or more crazy or whatever the case may be. And if that happens... Persecution historically, biblically, and just through history has always resulted in the furtherance of the gospel. If that happens, chocolate soldiers melt in the sun and real Christianity marches on. Now, I don't say that because I'm forever the optimist. I say that because that is the truth. We can't lose. And I don't know what will happen in our country. I honestly don't. Only God knows that. But I do know that either way, if persecution would befall the church, if, if our country as a whole would shift and would, and would just drastically oppose Christianity, that that would not be overwhelmingly negative. God will work that for good, and he will use that to, to further the gospel. And Paul sees his chains as divinely planned and distinctly productive. That God is doing this, and God is using this, and this is not new. God has always turned lead to gold. God took Joseph, whose brothers put him in a pit and sold him into slavery. Then he, then he went into slavery, and then he went into another prison, and then he went into elevated position. And, God, and Joseph gets to the end of his life, and he says, Brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. You thought you were hurting me. You thought that you were doing something negative. You thought that you were going to kill me. You, you meant this for evil, but the Lord orchestrated this for good. Paul writes to the Romans and tells them that we know all things work together for good to them that love God, to them that are the called according to his purpose. That if you are on team Jesus and you're living for him, that God can take this concoction and mix it together and he can make something positive even with negative circumstances. This is what Jesus told his disciples in Luke. He said, before all these, they shall lay their hands on you. They shall persecute you, delivering you up into the synagogues and into prisons, being brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake, and it shall turn to you for a testimony. He said, you're going to be persecuted, imprisoned, be brought on trial before leaders, but that is actually going to provide you a window to testify of me. It will give you an opportunity to speak truth and to speak the gospel that you would not have otherwise had. And over and over and over and over again in the Bible, three Hebrew boys go into the furnace and God uses it for glory. Daniel is taken captive into Babylon and God uses it for his glory. Daniel goes into a lion's den and God uses it for his glory. Even Jesus goes to the cross. He goes to the cross. He is betrayed. He is beaten. He put a crown of thorns on his head. He's mocked. And they put him on the, we sing about it all morning long. They put him on the cross and he dies. And all the disciples say, lead. It's despair, it's nothing, and they run away and they say it's over, game over for us, but let's, let's hang it up, it's over. But three days later, God says gold. 
He says, this is not, I'm taking something that you would think would be negative and terrible and, and this would be horrible, but I'm going to work this for your good and my good. I'm going to save you. I'm going to forgive your sins. I'm going to take your sin upon the cross. God does that over and over and over. The core of our Christian faith is that God does that. And Paul is willing to understand that this is happening to me. And his circumstances are still bitter. Right? It's not easy to be in prison. Think about living life with no privacy. I think the only thing worse than solitary confinement would be confinement with someone always being by you. You can't, I mean, Paul can't do anything by, nothing by himself. And Paul understands that, you know what, this is going to work for good. I wish that I could have some privacy when I'm doing this or this or this or that. But you know what, that guy's going to listen to me pray. And he's going to sit there and he's going to watch me write to the Philippians about my love and about the gospel. Hey, what you writing, Paul? Oh, I'm just writing about Jesus and, and how he, oh, he began something in them. He's going to continue to work in them. I love those Philippians. He's going to, that guy's going to be witness as people come and visit. And Paul begins to talk to them. He's going to sit right there. And Paul's going to take, or God's going to take that lead and work it for gold to the furtherance of the gospel so that people are hearing about Jesus in the palace, outside of the palace. People are waxing more bold, more confident to share Jesus. God's doing this. And Paul has a deep, deep understanding that his adversity is being used for good. And I would challenge you, look at your own life. I don't know, I don't know what pain is in the room this morning, but I know there's a lot of it. I don't know what has befallen you physically, maritally, financially, spiritually, emotionally over the past week or month, but no doubt, just sprinkled all over this room are people, and you're going through a tough time, and you would say, I would not have chosen this, and I, I do not enjoy this adversity, and this, this has caused me tears, and this has caused me pain, but try to get the glimpse that Paul has. Paul is willing to say, despite the fact that this is not something I would have chosen for myself, I can see that God's working in it. I would ask you to, to step back and to ask yourself, how, how am I reacting to tough times? Am I able to try to get a glimpse or perspective of how the Lord may use this for good? Have I seen Christ exalted in my adversity? Or do, do things not go my way and I just bristle and it sets my teeth on edge and I'm angry and I'm frustrated? If you're there then try to get a proper perspective and understand that God wants to use that and he can use that and trust him through it. I don't know what he'll reveal to you. I don't know what will eventually come out of that, but trust him through that. We had this in the first service this morning. Harold Malee sat on the, on the very back row as he always does. And, and many of you would know Harold. He's going through a, a deep cancer struggle right now. And, and Harold has told me probably a dozen times, man, the Lord is using this. I was able to witness to this nurse today. I would have never met her if not. I was able to connect with this other patient. I was able to connect with this doctor. That he's, he's tr what is Harold trying to do? Trying to do what Paul's doing? I'm trying to get God's perspective on this. I'm trying to see that he's using this, that Christ is being exalted in a way that he otherwise would not have been. And that causes you, Paul, Harold, any of us, to tend to rejoice. Here's what Paul continues to say. And he, he gives the preaching from his suffering. And he'll, he'll end it on a note of, of adulation and praise. Verse number 15. Some indeed preach Christ even of envy and strife, and some also of goodwill. So he's, he's contrasting two people, two groups of people. Verse number 16. The one preached Christ of contention, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my bonds. 
the other of love, knowing that I'm set for the defense of the gospel. What then? So Paul said, what should I do with this? Out of these two different groups of people, what should I do? Here's his answer. Notwithstanding, every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and I therein do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. Paul doubles down on it. He says, I'm rejoicing, and I'm going to keep on rejoicing. And this is, this is contrary to what the Philippians would have naturally thought. Paul is once again going to tell us the alchemy of God, that God is going to take something that's base and seemingly useless and negative, and he's going to turn it into something positive. And Paul says there are some people going around preaching, and they're preaching out of envy and strife. They're trying to hurt me, and they're not sincere. They don't even mean it. There are other people preaching Christ out of love and affection, and they're doing it with the right motives. And he says both of these people are actually putting forward Christ, and God is using that for his glory. And because Christ has preached, I rejoice in that, and I'm going to continue to rejoice in that. Like his reaction is to celebrate. Now this, this is a juxtaposition, all right, but it's not untenable. How, how do we reconcile that Paul just told us in verse number 10 to be sincere, not plastic, not fake, not feigning, to be sincere and without offense until the day of Christ. But now he says, these people are insincere and I'm rejoicing. Like doesn't it seem like those two just, they, they can't mingle together? They can mingle together. Is Paul putting his stamp of approval on their insincerity? No, absolutely not. He just told them to be sincere. Is Paul saying, yes, operate out of contention? Yes, operate out of strife? No. He writes in many other places, we strive after peace, and we don't, we don't be carnal and contentious and, and, and strife with each other. So Paul is not saying, I approve of the, of the fraud. I approve of the plasticness. I approve of being insincere. I approve of being contentious at all. But what he is saying is God is able to take even that insincerity and even that, that fake version of Christianity, and he's able to even use that for good. God can take people's lead that they're not even doing it out of the right motives, that they're they doing this with, with, with ill motive toward me, and he can even use that for good to preach Christ and bring people to the gospel. Paul's saying only God can do that. And I rejoice in that. I rejoice not that these people are being insincere, but I do rejoice that God's able to use their insincerity for Jesus' sake. Now this is very applicable for us as American Christians, because there's a lot of comedy, frankly, amongst the just broad evangelical scene in America. There's a lot of, if I was just completely frank, there's a lot of stupidity that is spun in the name of Jesus. There are, there are a lot of things that we would disagree with but yet we would understand that God could take that and he could use it for his glory. I have an evangelism class on, on Wednesday nights and there's about 50 or so people that we're walking through sharing our faith and, and those sorts of things. And in the summer we'll do the evangelism class again. If you haven't been to it, you should come to it. It's awesome. Uh, not because I'm teaching it, just because it's, it's a good, you need, you need to go to it. But it's been interesting to hear people's testimonies. 
And I'll give you the consolidated version, but there have been a couple testimonies that have popped up. One was basically someone who was living so contrary to the Bible, and just you would look at their life, and there was a litany of things that just, I mean, were utterly opposed to the Bible. But they talked about Jesus, and I was led to faith in Christ because of it. One in our class said, I was unsaved, and I went to a tarot card reader to try to figure out what my, what my fortune was, and the tarot card reader pointed me to Revelation, and I read Revelation and got saved. Now, are we starting a tarot card ministry next week? No. Absolutely not. Completely opposed to it. But can God take that and use that crazy for his glory and to bring someone to the gospel? Absolutely. So this does not mean that we put our stamp of approval on everything. This does not mean that you can just add gospel to anything you want to do and then God winks at it and it's okay. It's not okay to have a gospel strip club. You can't do that. It's not okay to have a gospel drug dealer that you put John 3.16 on whatever bag you're handing to somebody and then it's all right. That is, that's not okay. But could God use that crazy for his glory? Sure he could. God's a master of taking lead and turning it into gold. And we understand that even just broadly in Christianity, are there those that would preach a health, wealth, and prosperity gospel, which is completely anti-scripture? Absolutely. But can people come to faith in Jesus through that? Yes. Is there a lot of shysters on TBN that really their motive is money and it always ends in do this, do this, and now send me your money and I'll pray for you or I'll give you this or I'll do this and this? Absolutely. Would we put our stamp of approval on that and just write them a blank check and say that's okay? No. But can God use that to bring someone to Jesus and to help them? Yes, he can. And Paul gets what God is doing here. He's taking someone who's doing something with a improper motives out of envy and contention and strife and they're insincere but God says Christ or Paul says Christ is being preached and I'm going to rejoice in that he's still using that for something now these people were they were they those that were Christian and they just they were they just didn't like Paul maybe and maybe they were maybe they were just pagan people they're just walking around saying hey, you hear about that jailbird in prison He's saying that there's some guy, Jesus, you know, rose from the dead. And maybe people are saying, you know what, that does sound kind of crazy, but I want to look into that. That seems like something I'd want to research a little bit. And Paul says, this is not, I, I don't put my stamp of approval on this, but man, Christ is being preached. So I understand the lead that is being turned into gold, and I understand that I, I will rejoice in that. And once again, all through the Bible, God does that. I would have never dreamed of taking Balaam, a pagan psychic, and using him to give a divine message to the children of Israel. But God did. I would have never dreamed of taking Balaam's donkey to talk to him and give him a message. But God did. If it were up to me, after David committed adultery and murdered the, the gal's wife, or the, or the gal's husband, I would have never chosen to use him to write a psalm that would still to this day speak to our hearts and cause us to draw closer to God. But God did. I would have taken Jonah, who was, who was as insincere and mean-spirited and bigoted and pretentious as you could possibly get, who hated the people of Nineveh, and still God blessed his preaching. And he didn't have a good attitude when he gave him the message, but God still blessed it. God took Caiaphas, the high priest, and called Caiaphas a prophet. I want, I want to read that passage with you because I think it's a beautiful window into not just Passion Week, but also what God can do. And I never really picked up on this until recently. 
John 11, you can read it in your notes or read it in your Bible, either way. John 11, verse 47. This is the beginning of let's kill Jesus. And here's what verse 47 says. Then gather the chief priests and the Pharisees a council. They make their little committee and they say, what do we for this man doeth many miracles? Jesus is doing a lot of miracles. We got to come up with a game plan here, guys. All right? So here's our options. 48. If we let him thus alone, all men will believe on him, and the Romans shall come and take away both our place and our nation. We let him keep doing this? People are going to continue to follow him? There's going to be this groundswell of all these people going to come after him, and Rome's going to want to squash that. They're thinking Jesus is going to be some earthly king. They're going to want to squash that, and the Romans are going to kill us all. Verse number 49. And one of them named Caiaphas, being the high priest that same year. Now understand... If there's one man who's singularly responsible for putting Jesus on the cross, it's Caiaphas. The martyr of Jesus is going to be his brainchild, and he's going to push it forward all the way to Pilate, and Pilate's going to try to resist, and he will lead the people to want to crucify Jesus. If there's one man who you could directly point to to say he was responsible for putting Jesus on the cross, it's this man, the high priest, and here's what Caiaphas says, end of verse number 49. He tells all them, ye know nothing at all. Well, you bunch of idiots. 50. Nor consider that it's expedient for us that one man should die for the people and that the whole nation perish not. Caiaphas says, idiots, just kill him. It's better for him to die than us to die. Verse number 51. In this spake he not of himself, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus should die for the nation and not for that nation only, but that also he should gather together in one the children of God that were scattered abroad. You know what the scripture's saying? Caiaphas didn't even realize what he was saying, but he was actually prophesying that Christ, one, was going to die for all. The man who's trying to put Jesus on the cross, who's trying to lead in this insurrection to mount against Jesus, this man doesn't even realize that God's using him to prophesy what Jesus is going to do in the gospel that is going to die for our sins and take our sins away. But God says, I was using him as a prophet even when he was trying to kill my son. God can do that. I can't and you can't, but he can. He takes the, the crazy, he takes the stupidity. And Paul's willing to, to realize this. These people that are, that are contentious, these people that are in strife, these people that are insincere in their fate, these people that I would, I would never approve of until you do this, but God's still willing to, he'll, he'll use it. And Jesus is being preached, and because Jesus is being preached, I, do, I don't approve of the methodology, and I don't tell you to do that, but I do praise God that he can take people that are acting the fool and use it for his own good. What Paul is saying in a window is that God is turning lead to gold. So what does this, what does this do for us? Well, it should do a few things. Number one, it should help you to step back and to see how big and how awesome God is. Only he can do that. Only he can take your circumstances and turn them into something meanwhile and, and, and worthful. I don't even know if worthful is a word, but I made it up. <laughs> he can take that and he can use it for his glory and your good. 
So celebrate that and trust him through that. And whatever you're going through right now, surrender it over to him and say, Lord, I want to be your servant. I want your will, not my will. And I want you to rule and reign. And I'm willing, to, if, if you want to bring something to my life that's for the gospel's sake, then okay. Now, I told you from the beginning that Philippians was a book that really gives us a glimpse of Christian maturity. So I understand that, that that's some grown-up Christianity right there. That's big boy stuff. Most, most Christians, frankly, just aren't there where they can look at their suffering or their circumstances and you say, you know what, God's using this so that trumps everything and that causes me to joy. Most aren't there, but we should, we should be there. Paul was there. Understanding that this is being used for God and for the gospel's sake. And beyond all of that, I really believe that this helps us to see the number one criteria on what is important. To Paul, what was important, and in two weeks' time we'll cover it, it, was, it wasn't whether he lived or died. It, was, it wasn't whether he was bond or free. It wasn't if things were good and he had a, a bunch of great meals on his, on his plate or if, or if things were bad. That wasn't what mattered to him. What mattered to him was the gospel. What mattered to him and what drove this man and why he could really rejoice was because he understood People are coming to faith in Jesus. The gospel is going forward. Others are talking about Jesus. This is my primary motive. This is my true north on my compass of what drives my heart. I'm going to celebrate and rejoice in the gospel. And that's not just for the missionary. That's not just for the pastor. That's not just for the, the choir members. That's, that's supposed to be for every Christian. That what drives us and what concerns us and what we celebrate and what really is on our heart, what really determines whether, whether we approve or disapprove of something is whether the gospel's going forward, whether Jesus is being preached, whether we can celebrate that. And if you're not there, then this whole series is designed to be about that, together for the gospel. That we as a church need to understand collectively that what really moves the heart of God and what really should move our hearts is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus for our sins according to the Scriptures. So if you are, if you've believed that, if if you have believed that, that Jesus died for your sins and he was buried and rose again, then I encourage you to stay there and to make that your primary goal for your Christian life is to see the gospel go forward. If you have not believed that, in a room this size, odds are there are quite a few that probably have not. I don't care if you've been to church. I don't care if you consider yourself uh, religious. If you would tell someone that you were a Christian. If you've prayed before. If you've been baptized. That's not what I'm talking about. If you've never come to a point in your life where you have understood that Jesus not just died, but that he died for you and for your sins. And that he was buried and he rose again. And you have not put your faith and your trust and anchored it directly to him. Refused to trust yourself. Repented of your wrong and said, I am wrong. His, his wounds paid my ransom. There was something that was wrong in me that I put him on the cross. And I turned from that and turned to Jesus and put my faith in him. If you've never done that, I hope that you'll do it this morning. Because that is what moved this man, Paul. That is what I pray moves my own heart. And I would love for you to experience the good news of Jesus. That he has done for you what you could not do for yourself. He has forgiven you. He has given you peace with God. He has given you a home in heaven. Things that you cannot do for yourself. 
He has done for you. And if you've never trusted the gospel of Jesus, I pray that here in just a moment you'll do just that.